0: Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it's your first time here, I know we have a bunch of first-time visitors. Welcome, appreciate you checking us out. My name is John, if I didn't catch you on the way up. I am the lead pastor around here. Appreciate you guys coming to visit us. Hope you enjoyed your week off last week. I know that I did. So we are kicking off this brand new series called Greatest Hits. Let me kind of give you a little bit of insight as to how we came up with this idea. I was looking at my own Spotify playlist. I don't know if you guys use Spotify or, or Apple Music. Spotify is obviously better. We all know this. Um, but I have a playlist that's sort of my go-to. It's the starred list. It's all my favorite artists, all their greatest hits, and it is like three or 400 songs. And I just love these songs. These are the best ones. And it dawned on me that I spend most of my time flipping to the next song. Like I drove here this morning, and the whole time, I'm just like, next, 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 next. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. At one point, I loved these songs. There's a reason that I put these songs on this list. Why do I not listen to them anymore? And it dawned on me that, like, you know, a lot of times with the greatest hits in our lives, with songs like Billy Joel's Piano Man, you know, uh, Beatles, Yesterday, all these things, we hear them so frequently. They're played so often that we almost don't hear them at all anymore. kind of goes in the back of our mind. It's just background noise. And we forget what made these songs so popular. We forget why we put them on our playlists to begin with. And I realized that the same thing happens a lot of times with Scripture. There are particular, let's call it, greatest hits found in the Bible. Teachings, stories, passages, principles that we know so well, that pastors teach about so frequently, that we almost don't even think about them anymore. And what I want to do over the next couple of weeks is to spend some time taking a look at these greatest hits for a number of reasons. Number one, for the seasoned Christians in the room. Those of us who have been Christians for many years, perhaps your whole life, we hear some of these verses and we go, I know it, and we tune out. We go, I know what he's going to talk about, I know what he's going to say, and we tune out. My hope is that we can kind of tap the brakes and begin to look at these with fresh eyes and hear it with fresh ears. But more importantly, we have to remember that this church was created for a group of folks who have had either no experience with church or very little experience with church. And so the reality of that is that they or you, if you're not a Christian, or if you're new to it, you might not even know these greatest hits. So I'm going to expose you to these hits over the next couple of weeks because you know like when your friend shows you that one song and you're like, where's this song been all my life? This song is so great. How have I not? And then you play it constantly. I hope that is your experience with what we're going to learn um, throughout the next month or so. I want to put one thing on your radar just because so, I know you guys are planners. For week four in this series, June 23rd, we're going to talk about one of the craziest things that Jesus ever said. And he said this on the last night of his life, and he said it during what we now call the Last Supper. So he was spending some times with his friends, the disciples. And he took wine, and he took bread, and he broke the bread, and he said, here, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat it, and, and drink my blood. And they kind of looked at him and were like, what, what do we eat? Eat your, you know, eat your body, drink your blood? And this word got out into the Roman Empire and rumors started to fly around about what are these Christians doing behind closed doors? And 2,000 years later, people are still debating what was Jesus talking about that night when he broke that bread and he poured that wine. And so in week four of this series on June 23rd, we are going to be talking about exactly what Jesus meant that night during the Last Supper. And to celebrate that greatest city, we're going to take communion here at this church. People always ask me, hey, how often does Downtown Harbor Church take communion infrequently? The Bible talks about whenever you do it. Now, some of you may come from a background where you do it every week. We do it infrequently because we want to make sure that when we take it, it's special, that it has meaning, and we understand why it's so important that we're doing that. So mark your calendars. I want to invite you to join us that day, Sunday, June 23rd. But today the verse that I want to talk to you guys about, the greatest hit for today, a very popular one. Um, if you haven't spent much time in church, I guarantee you've probably seen it or heard it at least one or two times. And rather than me just kind of throwing it up on the screen the way that I normally do, I wanted to show you it in its, what has now become its natural element, the way that we're used to seeing these verses now. So if you're a Pinterest person or if you're a woman who likes to go to women's Bible studies, you may have seen this written like this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's our greatest hit. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I just put this verse into Google, and I did an image search, and it was like thousands of pictures that looked just like this. Just flowery scrolls, and you can go on Etsy, and you can buy it on, you know, shiplap, and it looks like something, you know, Joanna Gaines would use in a fixer-upper. Just real cutesy, and it's everywhere. But it's famously used in motivational posters. Things like this. You'll see an athlete. I can do all things through him who strengthens me the guy stretching out the old hamstrings before the big race. Athletes love this verse. When they need to dig down deep, when they got to find that fight to win that race, to beat that opponent, they quote Philippians 4.13 to give them the power that they need to beat that other person. Now, I don't know what happens if the other person's also quoting that, but that's above my pay grade, all right? But athletes love that. Now, the most famous athlete that really brought this into the spotlight was a boxer named Evander Holyfield. Back in the early to mid-90s, I don't know if you're a boxing fan. In the early to mid-90s, Evander Holyfield had to fight Mike Tyson. And at this point in Mike Tyson's career, the man was just, you know, he was an animal. I mean, fights would be over like this. He was that powerful. And now Evander Holyfield had to fight this guy. And so he put on his robe, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. He strengthens me and he was letting Mike Tyson know, and he was letting the world know that because of Jesus Christ, he was going to win this bout. And he did. He beat Mike Tyson. And it was amazing. And athletes saw, oh my gosh, the power available to us in this Philippians 4.13, and it took over the sports world. You know, football players were putting it on their cheeks. You were seeing it everywhere. And I just believe that whenever Scripture gets out there into the public sphere, it's a good thing. When you expose people to what's available in the scripture, it's a fantastic thing. But because of the way in which these athletes were using it, Philippians 4.13 became somewhat of a spiritual rabbit's foot. It's this good luck charm in a way that we we quote it and we quote it and we quote it and we can win that race we can land that job, we can bench press that new PR, we can get that promotion, we can get that bigger house, we can get that bigger boat, we can do anything because of Christ who strengthens us. And I was thinking about sort of the, the context of this whole verse that we kind of pull out and it dawned on me that it really is kind of the American dream of Scripture. I mean, if there was any verse in the Bible that is just so quintessentially American, it's this one. I could do anything because of Jesus who strengthens me. I mean, think about America. You know, it's the land of opportunity. Streets are paved with gold. Wherever you're from in the world, you can come here and you're promised life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Now, we kind of think we're promised happiness. No, it's just the pursuit thereof, but that's a different story. But here's the thing. We love this verse. Because you come here, you work hard, you can get that job. You come here, you work hard, you can get that house. You can get that car, you can get that boat. It's why we kind of love movies like Rocky. The underdog, the little guy. Cue that 80s montage music. You see him running around the streets of Philadelphia. You see him, you know, punching the cow that's hanging up there. And then he goes out and he beats the big bad Russian or whoever the case may be. And this pumps us up and we love this. And all of this can be yours if you just keep quoting, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now Holyfield used this verse to beat Mike Tyson. He put it on his robe and he beat the baddest guy around. His next fight, Lennox Lewis, he wanted to up the ante. So he actually stitched Philippians 4.13 onto his boxing shorts. He brought that verse into the ring. And then he lost. And I just have to imagine he was, he was wondering, well, what happened? I mean, I thought I was promised that I could do anything because of the strength that Christ affords me. What went wrong? Now, maybe you like the phrase Philippians 4.13. And you've applied that to your life. And maybe your outcome was similar to Evander Holyfield's. Maybe you lost. Maybe you failed. Maybe you found yourself asking or asking right now, what happened? Did God fail me? Did I not say it enough times? Did I not believe this verse hard enough? Maybe. Maybe Jesus' strength is not as strong as the Bible claims that it is. See, the issue is that when Paul wrote this verse 2,000 years ago, he was never talking about personal success. He was never talking about athletic endeavors. No, we've led ourselves to believe that because we've taken this verse out of context. Christians do that a lot. See, and the problem is that when we take a verse out of context, we take ourselves off course. When we find ourselves cherry-picking various verses throughout Scripture and we apply them to our lives in ways that they were never meant to be applied, we run ourselves aground. We set ourselves up for failure. We set ourselves up for bad theology. And worse, we do damage to the character of God. Because take Philippians 4.13 for a second. If we believe that we can do anything you want because of Christ who strengthens you, and then you fail... Whose fault is that? It's Jesus' fault. See, Philippians 4.13 never promised us that we'd win every race, land every job, and afford any car. It actually promises something much, much greater and something far more valuable. So I want to show you what it's trying to teach us, what we can learn. But we have to kind of get the full context of this verse. So this verse is found in the book of Philippians, or the letter to the Philippians. This was written by a guy named Paul. Paul wrote over half of the New Testament. And in this particular letter, he was writing to a specific group of Christians who went to a specific church that was located in the city of Philippi, the letter to the Philippians. And in this letter, he teaches a lot of really, really great things. But the overall gist of the letter is that he's trying to thank them for a gift that they sent him. They didn't send him like a birthday gift or anything like that. They sent him kind of a a gift of support, a, a gift of benevolence. They wanted to help Paul. Paul had done so much for them, they wanted to now give back to Paul and help Paul. And so you might be asking, well, why did Paul need help? What was going on in Paul's life right now that he needed help from this church? Well, Paul was in prison. Now, the only crime that Paul committed is that he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and he got locked up in a Roman jail. He was chained to his guards. He didn't know if he was going to live or die. He was separated from his friends and his family. And in the midst of all this, he wrote a letter to his friends in this church far away. And what I want to do, and Christine was afraid I was going to confuse you with this, but I just want to show you two other greatest hits from this book, this letter to the Philippians, because I think it's powerful for you to understand that Paul wrote these famous verses from a jail cell. He wrote this For to me, to live is Christ and die is gain. He says, Guys, 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 if I get out of here alive, I'm going to go preach the name of Jesus Christ. But if they kill me in here, which it might happen, that's okay too because then I get to be with Jesus. When he was in that jail, not knowing if he was going to live or die, he penned what has become some of the most famous, powerful teaching on fear, anxiety, and worry. He said, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you'll experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. You see, When you recognize that Paul wrote just these two verses, not from some ivory tower, not, you know, sipping champagne coolies looking at the Mediterranean Sea, that he wrote these verses not knowing if he was going to live or die, they become that much more powerful. So now that you have a picture of where Paul was when he wrote this letter, chained to a guard, not knowing if he's going to live or die all by himself. Take a look at the greatest hit for today. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let me ask you a question because you're all smart people. That's why you come to this church. Do you think a man who didn't know if he was going to live or die, who was chained to a guard, do you think a man was talking about success, riches, glory, an athletic achievement? Does that make sense? Does that sound like something a guy would be writing in his situation? No. It only sounds like that because we've pulled it out and we've slapped it on some motivational poster. But he was never talking about personal success. He was never talking about personal glory. That's not what he was talking about. So the question is, if he's not talking about success and glory, is it still worthy of being a greatest hit? I think it is. Let me show you what he's talking about. So let's get the full context. We are in Philippians 4, um, chapter no, chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. He says this. Now remember, he's writing to people who just sent him the gift. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you've always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. So this sounds a little bit weird. It almost sounds like he's chastising them a bit, like kind of like, hey, thanks for thinking about me again. But what he's saying here is that, We've always had a mutual respect. We've always loved each other. We've always supported one another. But there hasn't been an opportunity for you expressing that support. But now that I'm in jail, you have the chance to be concerned about me again. And he's talking about this gift that he sent. And he says something a little weird. But he says, not that I was ever in need. An unusual thing to say. But he's trying to set up some teaching here. Not that I was ever in need, continues, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. And this word learned is very important. It's gonna be the key word for the day. We're gonna talk about it later on. But what he's trying to say here is that this contentment that he felt in prison didn't come naturally. He wasn't born with it. It didn't come easily. It was something he has learned. And now that he's learned it, he says, I know how to live on almost nothing. He's in jail. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. See, when you look at the totality of the New Testament, you learn that Paul was probably at one point in his life a very wealthy man. He came from a wealthy city. He had a phenomenal education. By the circles that he traveled in, it became clear that this man was wealthy. So he's saying, I've had it all, and I've had nothing. And I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or And I think the Philippians would be reading this and and they're saying, Paul, Paul, how do you manage to stay content in this circumstance that you found yourself in? How do you manage to maintain joy when you are inside that jail cell and your life has been essentially taken away from you? And he goes, it's simple. I'll tell you, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And there it is. There's the crown jewel." there's the greatest hit. And when you see it in its true context, you realize that it has quite a different meaning from the way that we have used it. When he penned these terms, he was never talking about personal achievement. He was always talking about how one's heart responds to circumstances. You see, as humans, we often let our circumstances dictate our emotions and then we allow our emotions to dictate the way that we see those around us, the way that we see the world, the way we see, we see ourselves, and ultimately the way that we view God. And Paul's saying, you don't have to live like that. You don't need to be a slave to your circumstances anymore. Now, part of the problem with Philippians 4.13, and part of the reason I think that we've misapplied it so many times, is the way that it's been translated. So I did a little work, and I was able to find a translation that is closer to what Paul actually said from that jail cell so many years ago. He actually said something along the lines of this. I have the power to face all such situations in union with the one who continually infuses me with strength. This is never a verse about how strong I am. This is not a beat your chest. I can overcome the world. I can conquer anything. I can do it. This is not what this is about. This verse is about the strength of Jesus Christ. That no matter what circumstance the world has thrown in your direction, you can handle it because of the strength of Jesus Christ. You can be brave. You can be humble. You can do all of that because of the strength of Jesus Christ. So, how does Philippians 4.13 impact our lives? A couple of ways I want to show you. Number one, the strength of Jesus Christ will help us when we find ourselves in trials. So we are now kind of programmed to think about victories when we think about Philippians 4.13. We think about trophies and medals and championships and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is that in our own lives, a lot of our victories happen away from crowds when we're by ourselves. Now, we will have a lot of ups in life. We will have a lot of victories. You're going to graduate. That's phenomenal. You're going to get married. You might have a child. You might get a promotion. And these are all amazing, wonderful highs, victories in our life. And I hope at this point you have learned to give thanks to God when you have these great things happen to you. Because what we always say at this church, everything we have from our health to our wealth has been given to us on loan from God. So when we experience these victories, we say, thank you, God, thank you, God. But we know that it's not always highs, that we will run into trials and tribulations. And the thing that sets Christians apart is that we can have victory in the midst of those trials. James, who was the brother of Jesus, wrote this. I think it's fantastic. He said, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. I mean, isn't that, it's just amazing. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. I love the fact that he says, for you know That lets us know that he is speaking to an audience that is well acquainted with trials and tribulations and troubles. And I always, I mean, honestly, I always laugh when I hear about American Christians complaining about us being persecuted. Yeah, right. Honestly, we have it so easy here. We have no idea. But these people knew. And James is saying, you can grow through all of this. You guys know how good this is for you. And then he says something like this. He says, so... Let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. I love that, ch- like that he says, let it grow. That means it's a choice. That when you find yourself, when you've lost a job, when a marriage has fallen apart, when, when, when you get a bad diagnosis, he says, you got to let your faith grow. Because you have a choice how you're going to respond. And he says, I'm going to challenge you to lean into it because Jesus will get you through it. He'll bring you out the other side and you'll be stronger for having fought that fight. Paul, in a different letter, when he wrote it to the Romans, he picked this up and he said, hey, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance. He says rejoice. The other guy says have joy. You've got to love these guys. You've got to love the way that they have decided to view their troubles and their trials. I mean, I don't know about you, but, like, I flip out at the most minor inconveniences. Like, I'm driving my car, and that gaslight goes on. I'm like, ugh! Like, is there anything worse? I'm going to just kill myself rather than have to do this. These guys are about to die, and they're like, oh, beautiful weather. Great, right? We can rejoice. Wonderful. I mean, it's amazing. He says, and endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. It's amazing. Let's have a reality check here for a moment. Because what James wrote, what Paul wrote, it all sounds good in theory. But when you're the person going through the trial, when you're the person who lost your job, when you're the person whose marriage fell apart, when you're the person who the doctor just called with news that you're not so happy about, it's not so easy to feel good. And sometimes when you're in these dark places, you kind of say things like, I don't feel God in this situation. I'm not sure he's with me. Let me just say a couple of things about that. You may not feel God's presence, but God promises that he's always with you. You see, the problem is that when we go through stressful times, the very chemicals in our brain change and prevent us from feeling him emotionally the way that we need to feel him. But he's there. My old pastor Dr. Larry Thompson, I told him I was going to quote him today, said something what I think is very pertinent to this discussion. He said, when you can't feel God, you have to faith him. That means you've got to fall back on your training. You've got to think about the scripture that you've read, the anchors or the promises of God that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. You've got to think about all the sermons that you heard because you might find yourself in a very dark room where you can't necessarily see God in your situation, but you can faith and feel your way back to him. Second thing I believe that we learn from Philippians 4.13 is that we need to lean into Jesus if we ever want to truly understand contentment. Now this, I believe, is the thrust of the entire verse. Paul says this, I have learned, there's the word, I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. What I believe he's trying to say is that your contentment has nothing to do with your circumstances. Now, we cannot forget that Paul is writing this from a jail cell, chained to his guard, not knowing if he's going to live or die, and he is writing this. And he's telling his buddies, look, look, look. I've been through it all success, failures, ups, downs, rich, poor, sickness, health, food, and famine. And I was reading this verse and I was listening to almost the cadence of the way that he was speaking. It reminded me of one of Frank Sinatra's greatest hits. And I think Frank would say to Paul, Hey, you know what, Paul? That's life. That's what people say. You're riding high in April shot down in May, and I think what Frank is saying here is exactly what Paul is trying to get across to us. Life is not always going to be good. It's not always going to be victories. It's not always going to be highs. Sometimes they're going to be lows. And the very next line that Frank sings, I think it's very telling about the human condition. He says, but I know I'm going to change that tune when I'm back on top in June. Do you see what he's actually saying here? See, Frank is saying that his contentment is contingent upon his circumstances. That when he's back on top in June, then he'll change his tune. When things are going his way, when he's got the victories again, when everything's falling into place the way that he wanted, then he'll change his tune. Not a minute sooner. Not a minute sooner. He's going to wait. And then he wraps up this famous song by singing... But if there's nothing shaken come here this July, I'm going to roll myself up into a big ball and die. You know, we don't see the complexity of these these songs until we kind of pull it out and we stare at it. But I mean, this song, That's Life, is one of Frank's biggest hits. Any one of his greatest hits albums, it's on there. And the reason it's on there is because this is the song that every single one of us has sung at some point in our life. What he's talking about here is perfectly encapsulating the human condition. Because I believe far too many of us, you know what, all of us, let's put us all in the same bucket, far too many of us live a life of one side. Once I get that job, then I'll be fine. Once I find that spouse, then I'll be fine. Once I have that baby, then I'll be fine. Once I get that boat, then I'll be fine. Once my bank account reach, once I, what's your once-eye? Because we all have one. And Paul is trying to say, if you live a life of once-eye, you will never find contentment. If you are waiting for some external thing to change your internal joy, you will never find it. Now, your once-eye They're not a bad thing. In fact, most of our one-sides are very good things. And God may have that in your future. But Paul is trying to say, look, look, listen. Jesus is offering us the strength to know that we can be content even if we don't get the desires of our heart. That if we don't get the job, if we don't get the house, that we can be content because of Christ who strengthens us. But the problem we all face is that if we don't get what we want, we start to complain. And if we don't get what we want, we start to get bitter. And I just believe that this verse gives us the power to stop complaining. Have you ever been around a person who complains a lot? A person who's always singing the blues? It's brutal. Sucks the life out of you. Sucks the life out of them too. They don't want to be like that. God didn't design us to walk around complaining. And I believe this verse gives us the power to stop complaining and to begin living a life of gratitude no matter what situation we find ourselves in. I actually think the true power of this verse is knowing that we can be set free from our circumstances. Imagine that. Imagine actually living a life above your circumstances. No matter what is happening, you can just be content. Wouldn't that be great? Just content no matter what is happening. I actually think that is a far greater promise than just athletic achievement. But let's get real for a second because this is not easy to do. Finding joy in the midst of a trial is not easy to do. I want to tell you a story. Um, A couple of months ago, talking to a friend of mine, and we were having a discussion about this idea that there's a promise of heaven, that one day when we get to heaven, God is going to wipe away every tear, all of our sorrows, all of our pain, and there will be no more death. And because of that promise of heaven, no matter what you're going through right now, that promise makes this a little easier easier. We've taught this from the stage. The scripture talks about this all over the place. This is common Christian teaching. My friend looked at me and courageously admitted I understand what that says, but it's not helping me. Because I'm still disappointed. I'm still frustrated. And I'm still scared. And what this person was telling me without even realizing it, perhaps, is that their contentment was contingent upon their circumstances in spite of the promises of God. And the reason I tell you this story is because you might feel like that person. That when you hear a message like this today with its lofty goals of finding contentment, when you're in jail, finding contentment, when you might die, you might say, I get what Paul is saying, but I'm just, I'm just not there yet. I want to tell you what I told this person because you might think this about yourself. You are not a bad Christian if you're not jumping for joy in the midst of trials. Paul never expected you to be happy when things are going poorly. There's a difference between happiness and joy. What he wants for your life is that you could have victory over what's happening up here. See, Paul tells us that he learned how to have contentment. It wasn't natural, he wasn't born with it, and it didn't come easy. It took years of study and years of going through trials and tribulations for him to forge that unshakable trust and confidence that he had in Jesus Christ. And I think we all need to understand with hearing a message like this today, the contentment of Paul, what he's talking about, it takes practice. Because for you, if you find yourself in trouble right now and the promises of heaven aren't helping out, if the promises of verses like Romans 8.28 that all things are going to work together for the good of those who love the Lord, if that's not helping you in your current circumstance, that's okay. Because it takes time. And as you continue to follow Jesus, as you continue to study the scriptures, as you continue to come to the church and fellowship with other Christians, your endurance will grow, and in time, you will find yourself being set free from your circumstances, just like Paul was. So what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? It's your first time at DHC. Every single week, we put this word up on the screen because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So I want to paint a picture for you right now. In your own minds, I want you to imagine Paul. Let's go back 2,000 years ago. Think about what a Roman jail cell actually looked like. Picture this man who was thrown in there just for talking about Jesus. Picture him chained to a Roman guard, probably stripped naked, probably filthy, and definitely starving. And in the midst of all that, in spite of all that, he was living a life, Of contentment. And he was writing letters, trying to encourage other Christians, praising God in the midst of all that. It's almost inconceivable. Now, I want to pose a question to you. And I want you to think about this question all this week and perhaps even for the rest of your life. What would it look like for you to live a life that demands an explanation? that others ask when they see you going through things. How do you do it? What's going on in your life? Based on the way that you carry yourself, they go to you, I need an explanation. Where are you finding this joy? Where are you finding this peace? What would it look for for us to lose a job and go broke but say, I can do all things because of Christ who strengthens me? What would it look like for us to be sick and yet be at peace because I can do all things? Through Christ, who strengthens me. What would it look like for you to be rich, but be humble, because you can do all things through Christ, who strengthens you. This week I was thinking about that jailer, that man who was chained to Paul, looking at him, talking about these encouraging things, talking about how blessed he is. And I have to imagine this guy is thinking, Paul, how are you like this? Paul looks at him and says, Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I like to imagine, as that jailer said, who is this Christ that you're talking about? And I just think we have an opportunity in our own lives that no matter what we're going through, when we carry ourselves with that joy that we get because of what Jesus did on that cross, That we can change the lives of every single person around us. Because everybody's got trials, whether you're a Christian or not. And if they see an anchor in your life that you're somehow okay, even though you lost your job, you lost your spouse, maybe you're even losing your life, my gosh, you could change the world. We could do all things. Christ who strengthens us. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this great verse. I want to thank you, Lord, that you inspired Paul to write this in the midst of not knowing whether he was going to live or die. I want to thank you, Lord, that you allowed this verse to be saved for 2,000 years so that we could hear it today, so that if anyone in this room is currently going through something, some loss, some trial, some tribulation, Lord, and we know that even if, even if we're being blessed in the moment, Lord, you've told us that in this world we will have trials, we will have trouble, we will have sorrow. So at some point, Lord, every single one of us is going to go through something. Lord, because of this, we know that there is strength available to us. Lord, that we can make it through the other side because of you. But this isn't easy. So I pray, Lord, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray in your name, Jesus, that if someone right now does find themselves in that dark room, is having a hard time feeling your presence, perhaps is asking, where are you, Lord? Lord, I pray that today in a powerful way you would reveal reveal yourself. Lord, that they would know that you are in fact with them. That you are, because of your son Jesus, working everything together for the good of those who love them, Lord. These are powerful promises. These are greatest hits and they can change our lives. And we ask all of this In your son's name, amen.